Hi everyone, Andrew here. Soon, it will be time to start a new book on Send Me to Sleep, and we want you to help us decide what to read. Follow the link in the episode show notes and submit your vote. Thanks a lot. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me tonight and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading Part 2, Chapters 20-22 to 22 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. In the last chapter, we caught up with Vronsky and his friends before the race. In tonight's story, Vronsky continues to prepare for the race. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 20 Vronsky was staying in a roomy, clean, Finnish hut divided into two by partition. Petritsky lived with him in Camp 2. Petritsky was asleep when Vronsky and Yashvin came into the hut. Get up, don't go on sleeping, said Yashvin going behind the partition and giving Petritsky, who was lying with ruffled hair and with his nose in the pillow, a prod on the shoulder. Petritsky jumped up suddenly onto his knees and looked round. Your brother's been here, he said to Vronsky. He waked me up, damn him, and said he'd look in again. And pulling up the rug, he flung himself back onto the pillow. Oh, do shut up, Yashvin, he said, getting furious with Yashvin, who was pulling the rug off of him. Shut up, he turned over and opened his eyes. You'd better tell me what to drink. Such a nasty taste in my mouth that... Brandy's better than anything, boomed Yashvin. Tereshenko, brandy for your master and cucumbers, he shouted, obviously taking pleasure in the sound of his own voice. Brandy, do you think, eh? queried Petritsky, blinking and rubbing his eyes. And you'll drink something? All right then. 
we'll have a drink together. Vronsky, have a drink, said Patritsky, getting up and wrapping the tiger skin rug round him. He went to the door of the partition wall, raised his hands and hummed in French. There was a king in Thule. Vronsky, will you have a drink? Go along, said Vronsky, putting on the coat his valet handed to him. Where are you off to? asked Yashvin. Oh, here are your three horses, he added, seeing the carriage drive up. To the stables, and I've got to see Bryansky too, about the horses, said Vronsky. Vronsky had, as a fact, promised to call at Bryansky's some eight miles from Petrov, and to bring him some money, owing for some horses, and he hoped to have time to get that in too. But his comrades were at once aware that he was not only going there. Petritsky, still humming, winked and made a pout with his lips, as though he would say, Oh yes, we know you're Bryansky. Mind you're not late, was Yashvin's only comment, and to change the conversation. How's my Roan? Is he doing all right? he inquired, looking out of the window at the middle of one of the three horses which he had sold to Vronsky. Stop, cried Petritsky to Vronsky as he was just going out. Your brother left a letter and a note for you. Wait a bit, where are they? Vronsky stopped. Well, where are they? Where are they? That's the question, said Petritsky solemnly, moving his forefinger upwards from his nose. Come, tell me, this is silly, said Vronsky, smiling. I have not lighted the fire, here somewhere about. Come, enough fooling, where is the letter? No, I've forgotten, really, or was it a dream? Wait a bit, wait a bit. But what's the use of getting in a rage? If you'd drunk four bottles yesterday as I did, you'd forget where you were lying. Wait a bit, I'll remember. Patritsky went behind the partition and lay down on his bed. Wait a bit. This was how I was lying, and this was how he was standing. Yes. Yes, here it is. And Patritsky pulled the letter out from under the mattress, where he had hidden it. Vronsky took the letter and his brother's note. It was the letter he was expecting, from his mother, reproaching him for not having been to see her. And the note was from his brother, to say that he must have a little talk with him. Vronsky knew that it was all about the same thing. What business is it of theirs, thought Vronsky, and crumpling up the letter, 
he thrust them between the buttons of his coat so as to read them carefully on the road. In the porch of the hut, he was met by two officers, one of his regiment and one of another. Vronsky's quarters were always a meeting place for all the officers. Where are you off to? I must go to Petrov. Has the mayor come from Sarsko? Yes, but I've not seen her yet. They say Mahatin's gladiator's lame. Nonsense. But however are you going to race in this mud? Said the other. Here are my saviours, cried Petritsky, seeing them come in. Before him stood the orderly with a tray of brandy and salted cucumbers. Here's Yashvin ordering me to drink a pick-me-up. Well, you did give it to us yesterday, said one of those who had come in. You didn't let us get a wink of sleep all night. Oh, didn't we make a pretty finish, said Petritsky. Volkov climbed onto the roof and began telling us how sad he was. I said, let's have music, the funeral march. He fairly dropped asleep on the roof over the funeral march. Drink it up. You positively must drink the brandy. And then seltzer water and a lot of lemon, said Yashvin, standing over Petritsky like a mother making a child take medicine. And then a little champagne, just a small bottle. Come, there's some sense in that. Stop a bit, Vronsky. We'll all have a drink. No, goodbye all of you. I'm not going to drink today. Why? Are you gaining weight? All right, then we must have it alone. Give us the seltzer water and lemon. Vronsky, shouted someone when he was already outside. Well? You'd better get your hair cut. It'll weigh you down, especially at the top. Vronsky was in fact beginning, prematurely, to get a little bit bald. He laughed gaily showing his even teeth and pulling his cap over the thin place, went out and got into his carriage. To the stables, he said, and was just pulling out the letters to read them through, but he thought better of it and put off reading them so as not to distract his attention before looking at the mare. Later... Chapter 21 The temporary stable, a wooden shed, had been put up close to the race course, and there his mare was to have been taken the previous day. He had not yet seen her there. During the last few days, he had not ridden her out for exercise himself, but had put her in the charge of the trainer. And so now, 
He positively did not know in what condition his mare had arrived yesterday and was today. He had scarcely got out of his carriage when his groom, the so-called stable boy, recognizing the carriage some way off, called the trainer. A dry-looking Englishman, in high boots and a short jacket, clean-shaven, except for a tuft below his chin, came to meet him, walking with the uncouth gait of a jockey, turning his elbows out and swaying from side to side. Well, how's Fru-Fru? Vronsky asked in English. All right, sir, the Englishman's voice responded, somewhere in the inside of his throat. Better not go in, he added, touching his hat. I've put a muzzle on her, and the mare's fidgety. Better not go in. It'll excite the mare. No, I'm going in. I want to look at her. Come along, then, said the Englishman, frowning, and speaking with his mouth shut, and, with swinging elbows, he went on in front with his disjointed gait. They went into the little yard in front of the shed. A stable boy, spruce and smart in his holiday attire, met them with a broom in his hand and followed them. In the shed, there were five horses in their separate stalls, and Vronsky knew that his chief rival, Gladiator, a very tall chestnut horse, had been brought there and must be standing among them. Even more than his mare, Vronsky longed to see Gladiator, whom he had never seen. But he knew that by the etiquette of the race course, it was not merely impossible for him to see the horse, but improper even to ask the question about him. Just as he was passing along the passage, the boy opened the door into the second horse box on the left and Vronsky caught a glimpse of a big chestnut horse with white legs. He knew that this was Gladiator, but with the feeling of a man turning away from the sight of another man's open letter, he turned round and went into Fru-Fru's stall. The horse is here belonging to Mac. Mac. I never can say the name, said the Englishman, over his shoulder, pointing his big finger and dirty nail towards Gladiator's stall. Mahatin? Yes, he's my most serious rival, said Vronsky. If you were riding him, said the Englishman, I'd bet on you. Fru-Fru's more nervous, he's stronger said Vronsky, smiling at the compliment to his riding. In a steeplechase, it all depends on riding and on pluck, said the Englishman. Of pluck, that is, energy and courage, Vronsky did not merely feel that he had enough. What was of far more importance, he was firmly convinced 
that no one in the world could have more of this pluck than he had. Don't you think I want more thinning down? Oh, no, answered the Englishman. Please, don't speak loud. The mare's fidgety, he added, nodding towards the horse box before which they were standing, and from which came the sound of restless stamping in the straw. He opened the door, and Vronsky went into the horse box, dimly lighted by one little window. In the horse box stood a dark bay mare with a muzzle on, picking at the fresh straw with her hoofs. Looking round him in the twilight of the horse box, Vronsky unconsciously took in once more in a comprehensive glance all the points of his favourite mare. Fru-Fru was a beast of medium size, not altogether free from reproach, from a breeder's point of view. She was small-boned all over, though her chest was extremely prominent in front. It was narrow. Her hind quarters were a little drooping, and in her forelegs, and still more in her hind legs, there was a noticeable curvature. The muscles of both hind and forelegs were not very thick, but across her shoulders the mare was exceptionally broad, a peculiarity specially striking now that she was lean from training. The bones of her legs below the knee looked no thicker than a finger from in front, but were extraordinarily thick seen from the side. She looked altogether except across the shoulders, as it were, pinched in at the sides and pressed out in depth. But she had, in the highest degree, the quality that makes all defects forgotten, the quality that was blood, the blood that tells, as the English expression has it. The muscles stood up sharply under the network of sinews, covered with the delicate, mobile skin, soft as satin, and they were hard as bone. Her clean-cut head, with prominent, bright, spirited eyes, broadened out at the open nostrils that showed the red blood in the cartilage within. About all her figure, and especially her head, there was a certain expression of energy, and, at the same time, of softness. She was one of those creatures which seemed only not to speak because the mechanism of their mouth does not allow them to. To Vronsky, at any rate, it seemed that she understood all he felt at that moment, looking at her. Directly, Vronsky went towards her. She drew in a deep breath, and turning back her prominent eye till the white looked bloodshot, she started at the approaching figures from the opposite side, shaking her muzzle and shifting lightly from one leg to the other. There, 
You see how fidgety she is, said the Englishman. There, darling, there, said Vronsky, going up to the mare and speaking soothingly to her. But the nearer he came, the more excited she grew. Only when he stood by her head, she was suddenly quieter, while the muscles quivered under her soft, delicate coat. Vronsky patted her strong neck, straightened over her sharp withers a stray lock of her hair that had fallen on the other side, and moved his face near her dilated nostrils, transparent as a bat's wing. She drew a loud breath and snorted out her tense nostrils, started, pricked up her sharp ears, and put out her strong, black lip towards Vronsky, as though she would nip hold of his sleeve. But remembering the muzzle, she shook it and again began restlessly stamping one after the other her shapely legs. Quiet, darling, quiet, he said, patting her again over her hind quarters, and with a glad sense that his mare was in the best possible condition, he went out of the horse box. The mare's excitement had infected Vronsky. He felt that his heart was throbbing, and that he too, like the mare, longed to move, to bite. It was both dreadful and delicious. Well, I rely on you then, he said to the Englishman. Half past six on the ground. All right, said the Englishman. Oh, where are you going, my lord? he asked suddenly, using the title, my lord, which he scarcely ever used before. Vronsky, in amazement, raised his head and stared, as he knew how to stare, not into the Englishman's eyes, but at his forehead, astounded at the impertinence of the question. But realizing that in asking this, the Englishman had been looking at him not as an employer, but as a jockey, he answered, I've got to go to Bryansky's. I shall be home within an hour. How often I'm asked that question today, he said to himself, and he blushed, a thing which rarely happened to him. The Englishman looked at him gravely, and, as though he too knew where Vronsky was going, he added, The great things to keep quiet before a race, said he. Don't get out of temper or upset about anything. All right, answered Vronsky, smiling, and jumping into his carriage, he told the man to drive to Petterhof. Before he had driven many paces away, the dark clouds that had been threatening rain all day broke, and there was a heavy downpour of rain. What a pity, thought Vronsky, putting up the roof of his carriage. It was muddy before, 
now it will be a perfect swamp. As he sat in solitude in the closed carriage, he took out his mother's letter and his brother's note and read through them. Yes, it was the same thing over and over again. Everyone, his mother, his brother, everyone thought fit to interfere in the affairs of his heart. This interference aroused in him a feeling of angry hatred, a feeling he had rarely known before. What business is it of theirs? Why does everybody feel called upon to concern himself about me? And why do they worry me so? Just because they see that this is something they can't understand. If it were a common, vulgar, worldly intrigue, they would have left me alone. They feel that this is something different, that this is not a mere pastime, that this woman is dearer to me than life. And this is incomprehensible, and that's why it annoys them. Whatever our destiny is, or may be, we have made it ourselves, and we do not complain of it, he said, in the word we linking himself with Anna. No, they must needs teach us how to live. They haven't an idea of what happiness is. They don't know that without our love, for us there is neither happiness nor unhappiness, no life at all, he thought. He was angry with all of them for their interference, just because he felt in his soul that they, all these people, were right. He felt that the love that bound him to Anna was not a momentary impulse which would pass, as worldly intrigues do pass, leaving no other traces in the life of either but pleasant or unpleasant memories. He felt all the torture of his own and her position, all the difficulty there was for them, conspicuous as they were in the eyes of all the world, in concealing their love, in lying and deceiving, and in lying and deceiving, feigning and continually thinking of others, when the passion that united them was so intense that they were both oblivious of everything else but their love. He vividly recalled all the constantly reoccurring instances of inevitable necessity for lying and deceit which were so against his natural bent. He recalled particularly vividly the shame he had more than once detached in her at this necessity for lying and deceit, and he experienced the strange feeling that had sometimes come upon him since his secret love for Anna. This was a feeling of loathing for something whether for Alexei Alexandrovitch, or for himself, or for the whole world, he could not have said. But he always drove away this strange feeling. Now, too, 
he shook it off and continued to read the thread of his thoughts. Yes, she was unhappy before, but proud and at peace, and now she cannot be at peace and feel secure in her dignity, though she does not show it. Yes, we must put an end to it, he decided. And for the first time, the idea clearly presented itself that it was essential to put an end to this false position, and the sooner the better. Throw up everything, she and I, and hide ourselves somewhere alone with our love, he said to himself. Chapter 22 The rain did not last long, and by the time Vronsky arrived, his shaft horse trotting at full speed and dragging the trace horses galloping through the mud, with their reins hanging loose, the sun had peeped out again, the roofs of the summer villas and the old lime trees in the garden on both sides of the principal streets sparkled with wet brilliance and from the twigs came a pleasant drip, and from the roofs, rushing streams of water. He thought no more of the shower spoiling the racecourse, but was rejoicing now that, thanks to the rain, he would be sure to find her at home and alone, as he knew that Alexei Alexandrovich, who had lately returned from a foreign watering place, had not moved from Petersburg. Hoping to find her alone, Vronsky alighted, as he always did, to avoid attracting attention, before crossing the bridge, and walked to the house. He did not go up to the steps to the street door, but went into the court. Has your master come? he asked a gardener. No, sir, the mistress is at home, but will you please go to the front door? There are servants there, the gardener answered. They'll open the door. No, I'll go in from the garden. And the feeling satisfied that she was alone, and wanting to take her by surprise, since he had not promised to be there today and she would certainly not expect him to come before the races. He walked, holding his sword and stepping cautiously over the sandy path, bordered with flowers, to the terrace that looked out upon the garden. Vronsky forgot now all that he had thought on the way of the hardships and difficulties of their position. He thought of nothing but that he would see her directly, not in imagination, but living, all of her, as she was in reality. He was just going in, stepping on his whole foot so as not to creak, up the worn steps of the terrace, when he suddenly remembered what he always forgot, and what caused the most torturing side of his relations with her. Her son, with his questioning, hostile as he fancied, eyes. 
This boy was more often than anyone else a check upon their freedom. When he was present, both Vronsky and Anna did not merely avoid speaking of anything they could not have repeated before everyone else. They did not even allow themselves to refer by hints to anything the boy did not understand. They had made no agreement about this. It had settled itself. They would have felt it wounding themselves to deceive the child. In his presence, they talked like acquaintances, but in spite of this caution, Vronsky often saw the child's intent, bewildered glance fixed upon him, and a strange shyness, uncertainty, at one time friendliness, at another coldness and reserve in the boy's manner to him, as though the child felt that between this man and his mother there existed some important bond, the significance of which he could not understand. As a fact, the boy did feel that he could not understand this relation, and he tried painfully and was not able to make clear to himself what feeling he ought to have for this man. With a child's keen instinct for every manifestation of feeling, he saw distinctly that his father, his governess, his nurse, all did not merely dislike Vronsky, but looked on him with horror and aversion, though they never said anything about him. While his mother looked on him as her greatest friend, what does it mean? Who is he? How ought I to love him? If I don't know, it's my fault. Either I'm stupid or a naughty boy, thought the child. And this was what caused his dubious, inquiring, sometimes hostile expression, and the shyness and uncertainty which Vronsky found so irksome. The child's presence always and infallibly called up in Vronsky that strange feeling of inexplicable loathing which he had experienced of late. The child's presence called up both in Vronsky and in Anna, feelings akin to the feeling of a sailor who sees by the compass that the direction in which he is swiftly moving is far from the right one but that to arrest his motion is not in his power, that every instant is carrying him further and further away, and that to admit to himself his deviation from the right direction is the same as admitting his certain ruin. This child, with his innocent outlook upon life, was the compass that showed them the point to which they had departed from what they knew but did not want to know. This time, Sayosia was not at home, and she was completely alone. She was sitting on the terrace, waiting for the return of her son, who had gone out for his walk and been caught in the rain. She had sent a manservant and a maid out to look for him. Dressed in a white gown, deeply embroidered, 
she was sitting in a corner of the terrace behind some flowers and did not hear him. Bending her curly black head, she pressed her forehead against a cool watering pot that stood on the carpet, and both her lovely hands, with the rings he knew so well, clasped the pot. The beauty of her whole figure, her head, her neck, her hands, struck Vronsky every time as something new and unexpected. He stood still, gazing at her in ecstasy, but directly he would have made a step to come nearer to her. She was aware of his presence, pushed away from the watering pot and turned her flushed face towards him. What's the matter? Are you ill? He said to her in French, going up to her. He would have run to her, but remembering that there might be a spectator, he looked round towards the balcony door and reddened a little, as he always reddened, feeling that he had to be afraid and be on his guard. No, I'm quite well, she said, getting up and pressing his outstretched hand tightly. I did not expect the... Mercy, what cold hands, he said. You startled me, she said. I'm alone and expecting Seosia. He's out for a walk. They'll come in from this side. But in spite of her efforts to be calm, her lips were quivering. Forgive me for coming, but I couldn't pass the day without seeing you, he went on, speaking French, as he always did to avoid using the stiff Russian plural form, so impossibly frigid between them, and the dangerously intimate singular. Forgive you, I'm so glad. But you're ill or worried, he went on, not letting go her hand and bending over. What were you thinking of? Always the same thing, she said with a smile. She spoke the truth. If ever at any moment she had been asked what she was thinking of, she could have answered truly of the same thing, of her happiness and her unhappiness. She was thinking, just when he came upon her, of this. Why was it, she wondered, that to others, to Betsy, she knew of her secret connection to Tushkovich. It was all easy, while to her it was such torture. Today this thought gained special poignancy from certain other considerations. She asked him about the races. He answered her questions, and, seeing that she was agitated, trying to calm her, he began telling her in the simplest tone the details of his preparations for the races. Tell him or tell him not, she thought, looking into his quiet, affectionate eyes. He is so happy, so absorbed in his races, 
that he won't understand as he ought. He won't understand all the gravity of this fact to us. But you haven't told me what you were thinking of when I came in, he said, interrupting his narrative. Please tell me. She did not answer, and bending her head a little, she looked inquiringly at him from under her brows, her eyes shining under their long lashes. Her hand shook as it played with a leaf she had picked. He saw it, and his face expressed that utter subjection, that slavish devotion which had done so much to win her. I see something has happened. Do you suppose I can be at peace, knowing you have a trouble I am not sharing? Tell me, for God's sake, he repeated imploringly. Yes, I shan't be able to forgive him if he does not realize all the gravity of it. Better not tell. Why put him to the proof, she thought, still staring at him in the same way, and feeling the hand that had the leaf was trembling more and more. For God's sake, he repeated, taking her hand. Shall I tell you? Yes, yes, yes. I'm with child, she said, softly and deliberately. The leaf in her hand shook more violently, but she did not take her eyes off him, watching how he would take it. He turned white, would have said something, but stopped. He dropped her hand, and his head sank on his breast. Yes, he realizes all the gravity of it, she thought, and gratefully she pressed his hand but she was mistaken in his thinking he realized the gravity of the fact as she, a woman, realized it. On hearing it, he felt come upon him with tenfold intensity the strange feeling of loathing of someone. But at the same time, he felt that the turning point he had been longing for had come now that it was impossible to go on concealing things from her husband, and it was inevitable, in one way or another, that they should soon put an end to their unnatural position. But, besides that, her emotion physically affected him in the same way. He looked at her with a look of submissive tenderness, kissed her hand, got up, and in silence, paced up and down the terrace. Yes, he said, going up to her resolutely. Neither you nor I have looked on our relations as a passing amusement, and now our fate is sealed. It is absolutely necessary to put an end, he looked round as he spoke, to the deception in which we are living. Put an end. How put an end, Alexei? she said softly. She was calmer now, and her face lighted up with a tender smile. 
leave your husband to make our life one. It is one as it is, she answered, scarcely audible. Yes, but all together, all together. But how, Alexei? Tell me how, she said, in melancholy mockery at the hopelessness of her own position. Is there any way out of such a position? Am I not the wife of my husband? There is a way out of every position. We must take our line, he said. Anything better than the position in which you're living. Of course, I see how you torture yourself over everything. The world and your son and your husband. Oh, not over my husband, she said with a quiet smile. I don't know him. I don't think of him. He doesn't exist. You're not quite speaking sincerely. I know you. You worry about him too. Oh, he doesn't even know, she said, and suddenly a hot flush came over her face. Her cheeks, her brow, her neck crimsoned, and tears of shame came into her eyes. But we won't talk of him, 